I encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, as we finish up this study of 1 Peter, and soon we'll be in 2 Peter, later on this month, early June. In August of 2021, we began this study. It's part of a larger study that I entitled Kingdom Focus. We looked at a video a long time ago from Francis Chan. You might remember the rope illustration. He had a long rope with a little section of red tape on it, describing our life here on earth and the rope, the rest of the rope representing eternity. And how we live here determines how we're going to live in eternity. And so as we are in this world and it's ever darkening, it's getting more difficult, just remember that how we live now uh, and live in this life to the glory of God will reflect in the life to come and how we confront the darkness. We did a study on heaven in that summer as well, last year leading up to the first study, and we emphasized the importance of reminding ourselves that we're citizens of heaven in a world that's far from our home. We looked at Philippians 3.20, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about uh, the city of Philippi, I looked it up again last night, it was 4,607 miles from Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire. They were considered an outpost, the Church of Philippi. They longed to have more representation, more influence from Rome. But they also realized that they, even though they were citizens, they were far removed, that they realized as well that we're here on this earth and that our real home is in heaven. And so it's a picture for us to hold on to as we try to bring as much of heaven down to earth as believers in Christ, even as we face strong opposition. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Jesus could come at any time, but we're to be salt and light and to do our part to snatch people from the darkness and the hopelessness of this culture and bring them into God's kingdom of light. I think of people I've dealt with this week, the last couple of weeks, directly and indirectly, who are battling with thoughts of suicide and hopelessness, thinking about the difficulties of uh, people breaking up their marriages because they're in such hopeless situations. And we're seeing mental health and emotional problems rising quickly. I think a lot of it had to do with COVID, and it brought a lot of things to the forefront. So I just remind you what the purpose for the book of First Peter was that we started with was this, to educate and challenge the Christ follower on how to live holy lives that thrive in a culture of hostility in order that the grace of God would be revealed in their lives. So as we go through this difficult time, let the grace of God work through us, even if personally we're dealing with persecution, trials and tribulations, difficulties. Here's some examples of how Christians in the face of strong opposition made an impact on their culture. According to Theodoret of Cyrus on January 1st of 404 AD, an ascetic monk named Telemachus jumped to the floor of the arena during a gladiator match and begged the competitors to stop. The crowd was so angry at the interruption that they stoned Telemachus to death. When Christian Emperor Honorius heard about Telemachus' act of bravery, he ordered an end to gladiator fights. Telemachus' stand led to martyrdom, but it changed the culture. Through history, similar stands made in Jesus' name yielded similar results. Though they, didn't, they came at great cost, and they didn't always come instantaneously, 
but in the end, the culture was left better. Telemachus' brave act occurred 91 years, think about this, after Christianity was legalized by Constantine, and 24 years after it was made the state religion of Rome by Emperor Theodius I. Earlier, Christians denounced other evils. They insisted that sex be limited to marriage, and following the, the Jews, they rejected abortion and infanticide. They treated women and slaves as the spiritual equals of men. As a result, women and slaves became leaders in the church. Pliny the Younger, in a letter dated about 111 AD, mentions deaconesses and a slave who was made a bishop in Ephesus in the early second century. Now's the time for us as believers to stand and be counted no matter the cost. A couple of men from our church and myself, we went to uh, Pleasant Valley School District had a, a meeting about a book. And the book was entitled, All Boys Are Not Blue by George M. Johnson. And the book portrays the life of an African-American queer boy. And it's very pornographic in its details of what this little boy endured up through young adulthood. And the issue was, it was in the library at the PV High School. And so the appeal was made to take it out. And we heard people on both sides come up. And it was interesting to see, and it was a kind of a picture of where our community is with all these things. And it ended up being a, a very dark thing to hear that people were okay with 14 to 17 year olds allowed to check out a book that had extreme pornography in it and allow them to read that. And of course, the district met in closed session. They voted six to one to retain the book in the library. This week, it was posted that on April 27th, Iowa school votes to transition students and hide it from parents. I don't know if you saw this, but the Linmar School District voted five to two to allow men in women's restrooms, to allow male and female students to share overnight accommodations without their parents knowing it, threatened teachers and students who refused to use preferred pronouns, and transitioned students without informing parents. This is right here in Iowa. So the question before us is how will we live out the gospel in a quickly darkening culture as it gets closer and closer to our homes. Innocent children are being taught these things in our schools at such a young age now. How will we stand against it and make our voices known? What can we do now to help bring about culture change and at what personal price will it be to us as believers? So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, if you would, verse 5. 1 Peter verse 5 as I read to the end of the chapter. Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, Amen. 
By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter starts out in this section of scripture giving the readers final instructions based on what he's already written in this epistle. So the first thing on your outline, if you have that out and open, final instruction to put on the mind of Christ. To put on the mind of Christ. Verses 5 through 11. And he's going to give us a number of admonitions here. How we can have that mind as we close out this book and understand how to live an ultimate blessing life in the midst of suffering. First of all, be submissive to your spiritual leaders. Be submissive to your spiritual leaders. The first part of verse 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Notice the word likewise, or in some translations you may have, it says therefore. This is a reference back to verses 1 through 4 that we talked about last week. The charge to the elders, the under shepherds, the pastors. Peter started out the chapter talking to them and gives descriptions about how they are to do ministry. Now he turns the focus on the sheep, the flock of God. Submission to those in authority over us is a command in scripture and is an act of faith where we ultimately are trusting God by giving the honor and respect to that person in authority. We have to do that even if we don't agree with them. And whether or not their values match ours in the workplace or as a, in, a, in a school, if you have a, a student-teacher relationship or, or a coach on a team, sometimes their values may not reflect yours. But as long as it doesn't violate scripture, you are to honor and respect that. But there's always a risk in submitting to people in authority, the risk of being taken advantage of. There's the risk of someone abusing that uh, responsibility and leadership. In the end, we leave it up to God as we follow our leaders, knowing that ultimately we're following God. And they will stand and give an account, whether that be a manager at a workplace, whether it be a teacher in a classroom, a coach for a sports team, a pastor in a church, a husband in the home. Peter is asking for the younger to honor and respect those who are older leaders in the church who are mature in the faith. Now, not all people who are older are necessarily mature in the faith, but yet we need to honor them because they have wisdom, because they have experiences, they have things to share, they have value. And Peter goes on to say, second of all, to be humble in your attitude toward one another. Be humble, be humble. Look at the second part of verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. At the proper time, he may exalt you. Clothe. It's the idea here of, of a servant putting on an apron, about to serve food or, or do a project of some kind. And I think this brought back to Peter using this word, clothe, reminding him of Jesus girding himself around the waist and taking a towel and washing the disciples' feet. We demonstrate humility when we choose to put other, other people's interests in front of ours. 
Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Peter goes on in verse 5 to quote from Proverbs 3.34, which says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. In 1 Peter 5, it says God opposes the proud. Opposes means that God sets himself apart from. You do not want God setting himself against you. We are living in an age of cheap grace. And that's a, a, a phrase that is coined from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. I met with someone just a few weeks ago, a person who graduated from Christian college, worked in youth ministry at four churches, went to seminary, and he's throwing all his marriage and all that away because he met someone online. And he told me as I confronted him in Florida, and I talked to him one-on-one, I said, you know, you're walking out from the umbrella of God's authority. You're walking away from his will, and you're opening yourself up to all the consequences that are about to occur because of your action. He says, I'm willing to accept those consequences. And I said, you don't know what is going to happen to you. That's a pretty bold statement. We're living in a time where people think they can do it and then get God's forgiveness. Believers choose to willfully sin and say that God will forgive them. They're abusing the grace God has given to them and God will bring strict loving discipline upon them. Remember, pride was the first sin in the Bible from Lucifer. Think about it. He was the worship leader of all of heaven. In Isaiah 14, he has those five I wills that he wanted to dethrone God and put himself on the throne. And because of his pride, just the thought of pride, God knew in his heart he cast Satan, Lucifer, out of heaven with his fallen angels with him. And so pride has led us to Satan's attack on this world and the fallen angels who followed him out of heaven. Warren Wiersbe said this, the only antidote to pride is the grace of God, and we receive that grace when we yield ourselves to him. The evidence of that grace is that we yield to one another. Do you get that? When we appropriate the grace of God upon us, it should be evidenced because of the humility and the care and the compassion that we show others, the grace of God to them. God says if we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us. The mighty hand of God is talking about trusting in God's providence, his sovereign control over our lives, that we believe he always has our best interests in mind no matter what the circumstances are at our time. And I love this. He says he will exalt us at the proper time. Or in other versions, it says in due time. Now, some commentators think this is talking about when we will be exalted at the second coming of Christ and we'll serve with him in the millennium. But most commentators believe this is talking about the here and now. That God takes us through times of suffering, of persecution, of trials and tribulations in order to prepare us to be exalted. Think about Joseph. 13 years of being in enslavement, in prison, and finally he's elevated to be second in command over all of Egypt. Think of Moses. He left Pharaoh's house. He murdered, some, murdered an Egyptian. And then he goes on the backside of the desert. And at age 80, God calls him to deliver uh, the nation of Israel out of Egypt. 
My two that just baffle my mind are Joseph and Caleb. Now think about this. We don't think about this very often. They were part of the 12 spies that went into the land. And when they came back, 10 guys said, we can't do it. And these two said, we can, because we stand on the promises of God. And because of the unbelief of the Israelites, these two men who had faith had to suffer all the consequences for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. And in the end, Joseph, who served under Moses, became the leader of Israel. Nelson Mandela sacrificed 27 years in prison because of his convictions. And when he was released and when he was voted in to lead his country, he showed the spirit of forgiveness. He invited his jailer friends and the warden to his inauguration and reserved the front row seat for them. That's a sign of humility of a spirit of forgiveness. Remember, the first the cross, and then the crown. First the suffering, and then the glory. That's what Jesus exemplified for us. If you have your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, or you can look up at these verses on the screen, but Luke 14, Jesus gave a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he said in Luke 14, verse 7, Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. And when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at a table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When I was dealing with my uncle's estate in Pittsburgh and he was leaving money to Bethany Baptist Church, I met with the pastor, Bill Glaze. It's an African-American church in Homewood, Pennsylvania, suburb of downtown, and it was a pretty tough neighborhood, and they have a very important ministry, and he was having a men's uh, conference, and Mike Tomlin, the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who's a Christian, was invited, and he told me this story that they saved a, a place right in the front by their church for Mike Tomlin to come and park, and of course, Mike Tomlin was coming after the event started, and so the surrounding streets were filled, and Mike Tomlin parked almost a mile away and walked. And Bill Glaze said, you didn't have to do that. We had a place for you. And Mike Tomlin said, I don't roll that way. I don't roll that way. I'm just like everybody else. And I love that attitude of that coach who's coming to speak at a conference. The next thing we see, be continually trusting in God's care. Be continually trusting in God's care. 1 Peter 5, 7. Let's say this verse together. It's up here on the screen. Let's say it. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's say it again. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm sure many of us in this room have probably memorized that verse and claimed it numerous times in our life. This is one of Peter's classic words of encouragement. This verse refers to, in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount at the end of it. In chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, where Jesus is talking about 
not to be anxious for anything. Don't worry about tomorrow. Look at the flowers and see how God takes care of them. He's going to clothe and feed and take care of you. If we meet the conditions of verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter 5, this is a great promise for us to hold on to when we face anxiety. Peter's quoting from Psalm 55, 22, where David is very anxious. He has been anointed king, but of course Saul is now chasing him out of jealousy and trying to kill him. And he uses this verse in Psalm 55, 22, David did to talk about how he had to just let his fears, his anxieties, his uncertainty of the future go and leave it up to the Lord. That word casting is like that of a fisherman, casting a line into the water. It means throwing something or throwing a blanket on an animal as it's used in other places in the Bible. We're to throw our discouragement, our despairs, our discontentment onto Christ with confidence that he will take care of us. Here's four things you can think about as you think of this verse. That Christ will give us the courage to face our cares honestly through God's eyes. That he'll enable us to see with his perspective and his lens in the picture of eternity what the circumstances are that we're going through. Christ will give us wisdom at some point to understand our situation. James 1.5 promises that he gives wisdom to all who ask. Christ will give us strength to do what we need to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then we have what we need, the ability through the Holy Spirit to endure whatever difficulty we're facing. That Christ will give us faith to trust God to do what we cannot do. Those are four important things as we think of that verse. There's a story about a farmer. And he was in the Midwest. And in 1988, the Dust Bowl came and wiped out his farm. And so he continued to farm, but he didn't have any money. So he went to work in town at a factory. And there he also had benefits, medical benefits for his family. And every morning when he would walk out to his car, he would touch what he called the worry tree. He would touch that tree and he would pick up all the burdens and the responsibilities and the things that were concerning him about the day in front of him. And then at the end of the day, he would come home, park his car, and before he walked in the house, he touched the leaves of the worry tree to leave those burdens, those responsibilities, those issues behind so he could focus on his family and not be burdened down with whatever cares. You and I, we need a worry tree. We need a place to leave those things. And we leave them at the foot of the cross. And then we are to be on guard against the evil one. Be on guard against the evil one. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, it says in verse 9. Sober-minded means to be on guard, to be focused, to know your enemy. Notice the verses preceding this. We have to have a submissive, humble, trusting heart, along with self-controls. It says here, in order to battle with the devil, to be prepared. Satan is a powerful enemy. Notice the words in verse 8 that are used to describe him. Adversary. That means he's a slanderer. He's an opposing attorney against you in the court of law. He's a lion. Peter may have used this term lion as he was thinking about the Christians that were being mauled to death in the Roman Colosseum by the lions for their faith. Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. It says to devour. 
That word in the Greek literally means to gulp us, to eat us up. Satan's mission is to keep Christians quiet, to destroy their testimony through the allure and curiosity of this world system filled with beautifully wrapped temptations. Satan's five main targets are, first of all, God. As we mentioned, Isaiah 14, he desired to dethrone God, and he was cast out of heaven with his angels with him. His second attempt was Christ. You know, he tempted him in the wilderness. And then it says there in Matthew 4 that he waited for an opportune time, and the next time was the Garden of Gethsemane and, and all that the cross brought. It tells us in Revelation 12, 4, and the dragon... Satan stood before the woman who was about to give birth, Mary, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's a, that reminds us back to Luke chapter 2, where Herod had all the infant kids, all the infant males killed, attempting to kill the king of the Jews. Israel in Esther 3, Haman and the king got a decree to destroy all the Jewish people, genocide, wipe them out. But of course, we know that he didn't, that didn't work, and Mordecai stood up, and so did Esther. And we celebrate the Feast of Purim with the Jewish people as a sign of victory because of that. And then Satan attacks the angels, the angels of God. In Daniel chapter 10, we don't get many opportunities to peel back the clouds and see spiritual warfare, but here's a great one in Daniel 10. This is an angel coming to Daniel in response to a prayer request. He says in verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's a fallen angel, withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the other angels, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia, the other fallen angels that were fighting them, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. The angel was hindered in going to Daniel because of spiritual warfare. And then obviously, he targets believers. Believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he loves to use people in pulpits, people in spiritual leadership, false prophets. He says in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan tries to counterfeit the things that God does. Verse 15, so it's no surprise of his servants, his preachers also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan uses the world system to tempt us, to attack marriage and family, and the leaders and members of the church. So we're reminded, admonished in a variety of New Testament scriptures to resist the devil. In Ephesians 6, it says we're put on the full armor of God. In Revelation 12, 11, it talks about how by our testimony, the words of our testimony and the blood of Christ, that we can push back Satan's influence in our lives. And then we're to be strong in your faith. We need to be strong in our faith. 1 Peter 5, 9, the second part of the verse is firming your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We are to stand firm on what our identity in Christ is, what the Bible says about us. Remember, Satan will be bound in the millennium for most of that thousand-year reign. He'll be allowed to come out toward the end. He will gather a group of people for a final rebellion against Christ. 
And then he will be cast into the lake of fire with his fallen angels forever. Notice Peter reminds his readers that they're not alone in their suffering. That gives us great confidence to know we're not alone as Christians in our region. In early April, I went to Iron Sharpens Iron. And it was powerful to see 850 men singing praises to God in one place from people within a 50-mile radius of our area. That's why going to Christian concerts is important. These things help strengthen us because we're not alone, that there are others in this battle with us, but we need to continue to stand firm. Be in the habit of building endurance in order to receive your eternal glory. Be in the habit, continually, building perseverance in your life so you'll receive eternal glory. Look at verses 10 through 11. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to remember what it says there. And after you have suffered a little while. And after you have suffered a little while. Remember, there are suffering in the time frame of God's calendar is just a small part in time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As we get older, as we, get, as we age, as we can't do all the things that uh, we'd like to do. I remember I had a pastor who said that when he was 60, he could do anything that he used to do at age 20 for 30 seconds. And that was about it. As we get older, we can't do all those things. But the inner self, the new man is being renewed, built up. The Holy Spirit is, is growing us. And so we need to keep it in perspective, the suffering and the difficulties that we go through. I encourage you to memorize these verses and let them flood your soul. He says there in verse 10, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, our present grace, our past grace, our future grace, like the phrase, the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1.3. They were praying for the Elledge family, for Jessica, for Ava Emery, and for them as they go through this difficult time, the God of all grace. God has committed to give the believer each day a new measure of grace, just, he gave, just as he gave manna in the wilderness for six days. And of course, they picked up extra on the sixth day so they didn't uh, break the Sabbath. But God provided for them 40 Years. It says their shoes did not wear out during that journey. God will provide grace to us. He tells us there in verse 10 that we're called to his eternal glory in Christ by his grace. This is the last use of the word glory in 1 Peter. It's used eight times in this epistle. And because we are called, he will keep us from straying away if we remain faithful to him. In 2 Peter 3.17, Peter said, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Notice these words he used to describe calling us to eternal glory. He will restore us, 
fully to what he's created us to be. He's going to equip us. He's going to bring us to a place of perfection when we get to heaven. That word restore is taken from a similar passage in Matthew 4.21 where it says that Peter and Andrew and James and John who were fishermen were mending their nets, were restoring them to go out and catch more fish. He will confirm to set fast, to ground us in the faith. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It says he will strengthen us. That means to make sturdy. He will establish us. That means to fix firmly. Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Always come back to the central focus of the gospel of our, in our lives. In verse 11, we see the beginning of the doxology, dominion. God's ability to keep under control, to acquire and maintain mastery over. The power belongs to God both now and in eternity. So the application here is may we avoid the traps that would detour us on the road to heaven. May we avoid the traps. Satan is a formidable foe, but he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful, all-knowing. He's not everywhere. His angels are helping support him. But God is the one who can give us the victory over Satan. Peter closes out his letter in this way. And this will be brief. Final greeting, remain hopeful. Remain hopeful. That's his final message in verses 12, 13, and 14. First of all, he says that by talking about Silvanus or Silas. Be faithful. Be faithful. In 1 Peter 5, 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanus, or we know him as Silas. He's the writer of these words. It says, by Silvanus, I have written briefly to you. Silvanus was the, the writer of this. We believe that Peter wrote probably the last several verses by his own hand. Silas was to deliver this letter to be read all over Asia Minor by a route predetermined according to 1 Peter 1.1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those were the places that Silas was going to take this letter and have it read in those churches first. This was most likely the same Silas that traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts 15. Silas was a faithful brother according to Peter's estimation of him. In the middle of verse 12, we see the purpose of this letter, of why he wrote this. Encouraging and testifying of the true grace of God. That was his purpose for writing. Then he says, stand fast in your suffering so that the unbelieving world will witness how the true grace of God is displayed by how you act and react to suffering and persecution. Just like you might have a coffee press at home and you press those coffee beans to make coffee. Just like you see a wine press. You put the grapes in and you get the fruit of the vine. As those things are squeezed, the precious juice or fruit and coffee is revealed. So when God presses on us, the grace of God is revealed to the people around us. 
Second of all, under this point, be displaying love toward one another. In verse 13, he says, she, is, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Some scholars think that the she there is Peter's wife, but most believe that Peter is using Babylon as another descriptor for Rome, and that he's trying to protect uh, where he is from persecution, him and the church. The she there most likely is the church, the bride of Christ in the city of Rome, and Peter is trying to disguise it for protection. It says in verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Greet the brothers with a kiss of love. Men kiss men on the cheeks. Women kissed women on the cheeks. It was a term of endearment. It was wishing goodwill toward those in the local body of Christ. Do you realize from history, it's been said that in the church at Rome, that that church was probably made up of 50% of people who were slaves and believers in Christ. Can you imagine Christian slave owners and Christian slaves using this term of endearment as they gathered for church together as equals in the room, going out, understanding their place in the culture? He says, peace to all who are in Christ. Paul ends his letter speaking of grace, but Peter speaks of peace at the end of his letters. This is a Hebrew benediction. Peter begins 1 Peter 1, 2 with peace and ends his letter with peace. And that peace comes from Christ and knowing him and the peace that passes all understanding based on Philippians 4, 7. And lastly, be in the process continually of making disciples. Be in the process of continually making disciples. How do you get that out of that last phrase? And so does Mark, my son. Peter was mentoring Mark, who was Barnabas' cousin. Paul, the Apostle Paul, places Mark in Rome when he quoted or wrote down Colossians 4.10. Mark's gospel were the words of Peter written down by Mark, Peter's version of Christ's life. As Peter mentors and disciples Mark, so we should be about the business of being disciple makers ourselves. Here's our application. May our legacy be that we were found faithful to the Lord. May that be our legacy, that we will persevere, that we'll endure to the end, as Jesus said, that we'll stay faithful to him. This past week, my wife and I were looking at some videos from Legacy Coalition, and we missed a few back in November. They have Grand Monday Nights, where some of you know they show uh, interesting things for an hour from 7 to 8 Central Time about intentional grandparenting, spiritually intentional grandparenting. Very, very good and valuable stuff. If you'd like to know about it, see myself or Mike Meyer. I think you guys watch it, Dennis. And we can hook you up with that. And it just comes right to your email box every week. Well, we were looking at uh, Steve and Marianne Green that was posted back in November. And they started out, before they talked, about him singing this song, Find Us Faithful. The song says, we're pilgrims on the journey of the narrow road, and those who've gone before us line the way, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Then on the screen here are the words to the chorus. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. 
Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. The key thought here is the ultimate prize for enduring suffering is that we glorify God and that we'll receive the fullest joy and satisfaction in this life and in the life to come. Let's bow for prayer. Oh, Father, may the words of that chorus resonate in our minds today that we would be found faithful, that when our time on earth is done, and our times are certainly in your hands, Lord, you know the number of our days, but that we will be found faithful, whether that, that dash between our birth and death is short or long, it doesn't matter. It's that we are found faithful and that we've done what you've called us to do. And Lord, as we've read through this book, there's going to be suffering and obstacles and trials and tribulations and detours and falling into sin and getting out and all these things, Lord. But in the end, help us to endure and persevere as Peter admonishes us in this great epistle to keep our eyes focused on you, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father because of the joy that was set before him. Help us to have the long view of life and the long benefit of eternity in front of us. As we serve you today, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.